Hello, welcome to the Scott Gooding Project Podcast. Each episode, I'll chat openly with someone passionate about what they do and have a vision for our future. The project is designed to be thought-provoking and hopefully spark conversation about optimizing health and performance. Very excited about this podcast. I'm actually popping a cherry and uh, a first for the Scott Gooding Project podcast. I'm having a threesome. That's right, two very special guests. I hope you enjoy. Fellas, welcome to the show. Um, guys, we've got one of the, the greatest minds in Australia here, and I'm not talking about myself, and also one of the greatest minds in New Zealand. So collectively, we are on the money today. We've got Josh uh, Sparks, founder and CEO of Thrive, and we've got Cliff Harvey, uh, a researcher from New Zealand. So welcome, boys. Thanks, man. Good to be here, Scotty. Um, so I guess today I would like us to unpack a little bit about keto, ketosis, ketogenic diet, all these sort of words that have been thrown around a lot in the last six to 12 months. And I know Cliff, you do extensive research in this field. And I think there's a lot to learn from you and your research findings. But I think first and foremost, we need to sort of really unpack it on a, on a basic level. And so people have a firm understanding what a low-carb diet is, what ketosis is, and the therapeutic properties, I guess. Cool. I don't know whether that was a question, actually. There, there was a question. <laughs> There's a question in there. I, I can find a question in there. Yeah. So in a nutshell, a ketogenic diet is really any diet that's low enough in carbohydrate and usually high enough in fat that the body will go into a particular state of metabolism called ketosis. And all that is, in a nutshell, is that you're producing these fuels called ketones, ketone bodies, and you require those when you're in a state of carbohydrate deprivation to fuel the brain and central nervous system. So really it's a survival adaptation to help the body to get through those times of either fasting or when we didn't have carbohydrate available, which in the course of human development was was quite a lot of the time. Yeah. So this is um, nothing new. This has been part of our landscape for millennia, and I, but I guess it's only just sort of come to the fore on the back of primal and paleo is kind of like the natural evolution of that kind of diet I guess but it's certainly from a genotype it's nothing new no nothing new and you know clinically we've been using keto well not me because I'm not the soul but clinically we have been using ketogenic diets for you know basically a century to treat various neurodegenerative disorders particularly epilepsy and you know there's been a lot of research done in the last 30, 40 years in athletic populations and you know the mainstream as well. So certainly not something new and in some respects it probably even predates to some degree the, the resurgence of paleo and primal. Mm. Um, and is it, so, I know that there's sort of that classic keto from a, which is more, more has more sort of clinical applications. So that's kind of 90% of your calories taken from fat but I guess when we're talking about ketosis, are we talking about that model or are we talking sort of that modified Atkins approach where it's like 75%? Yeah, I think nowadays we're starting to look at a really wide spectrum of what a ketogenic diet could be, right? And you're 100% right, back in the day, it really was those very high fat, very low carb diets because that was a surefire way to get basically everyone into ketosis. Now we can see that a lot of people can actually get into ketosis on 
slightly lower levels of fat, slightly higher levels of carbohydrate and protein. And particularly as we start to expand our understanding of that with the use of medium chain triglycerides and intermittent fasting and all sorts of different ways to eat, we're, we're really starting to flesh out how different individuals will get into ketosis more or less easily. And that's really, you know, that's one of the areas that my research is focused on is, is helping to differentiate that to some degree. Mm. So it's not about, you know, arguably we could all wake up in ketosis. That getting there isn't the challenge, it's staying there, right? Well, getting there can be a challenge because most of us aren't going to wake up in ketosis proper. Uh, but most of us will enter ketosis at some stage. Some people won't. And you know, this is another area that we need to look into more is some people won't get into ketosis. But I think uh, what you're getting at is that we used to think, or a lot of people used to think in the mainstream about ketosis being like an on-off switch, mm. right? So you're either in or you're out. And as I started to measure the blood ketones of people following non-ketogenic low-carb diets over the years, particularly paleo-primal, and finding that they consistently had higher levels of ketones, even though they weren't in ketosis, really helped to show that it's, it's a spectrum. Mm. Like anything else, it's a spectrum. And this also points to the idea that, hey, in some respects, ketones in the blood can be beneficial, even if you're not in ketosis proper. That's, uh, th that's actually a fascinating aspect of Dom D'Agostino's research that I've become aware of, that even in the absence of nutritional ketosis, the introduction of exogenous ketones, for example, in certain therapeutic applications, such as cancer, can provide a, um, a useful adjunct to chemo, for example, even though the patient is not in true nutritional ketosis. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. And uh, I, I think, you know, with the greater use of MCTs and the greater use of exogenous ketones, we're really being able to exercise those benefits. Uh, as long as someone's blood glucose is relatively stable and is not being spiked or spiked for too long, then you know we can certainly exercise a lot of benefits from having simply higher ketone levels in the blood. Yeah, yeah. Can I, can I rewind a little bit? Because what I'd love to, um, to understand is, is as a... a, a in addition to your teaching and your your PhD work and the various things that you're you're doing, you still see clients as a nutritionist. So when you're first encountering a, a, a client and trying to understand what is going to provide the, the the highest ROI, for want of a better description, in terms of the shifts that they could potentially make in their nutrition and their training to get them from A to B. At what kind of things do you look at in terms of that initial assessment and to the extent that you're making a re recommendation around a keto style plan versus a more traditional low carb or cyclic low carb for example plan how are you how are you making those recommendations I think at the at the ground level every good diet has certain things that it encompasses and the, the most important of those, of course, is that the diet is made up predominantly of natural, whole, and unprocessed food. And that doesn't mean that I'm some sort of you know, naturalist or I fall into what we call that naturalistic fallacy, which is that idea that natural's always good and synthetic's always bad. It's more so that we, we future-proof ourselves by having those extra nutrients, that nutrient density, those fibers, those gut-supporting resistant starches, all those types of things. And so basically that provides the basis of any diet, whether it contains very low carbs or maybe more moderate carbs. When we go to the next level and we start to determine, well, what is actually best for one person? Uh, because we need to consider that 
not everyone thrives on a very low carb diet and probably few of us thrive on a very high carb diet but there are people at either extreme we need to just look at the clinical markers that we see in a patient in a client and one of the biggest and most important of those that we see you know coming through consistently in the research is someone's insulin sensitivity so if someone is more insulin sensitive we could conclude in most cases that they probably tolerate carbohydrate more effectively and they probably benefit actually from a slightly higher carb diet whereas where people are insulin resistant they typically thrive on a lower carb diet and in some cases a very low carb diet yeah so you're looking at blood markers to give you a sense of insulin sensitivity or lack thereof or is that more of a visual cue initially or some combination of both it's a it's a bit of both um i i would typically go and look at those blood markers you know HbA1c which is your average blood glucose over time and your lipid profile so your cholesterol your triglycerides all those sorts of markers as indications that someone is insulin resistant but uh, you know when I spoke at low carb down under a few years back and Gary Fecky was there someone in the audience asked us well how do you know if how do I know if I'm insulin resistant and I was about to pipe up with my you know nerdy sort of pointy head answer and Gary said well walk towards a wall and if your stomach hits the wall before your nose, you're <laughs> insulin resistant. And it's a, it's a good point because, you know, most people who are insulin resistant will have increased abdominal girth. They'll have increased abdominal adiposity, which is that body fat around fat, the yeah, yeah. abdomen, yeah, and inside the visceral cavity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's, a, that's certainly an easier test than going to the pathology lab and yeah. Yeah. I'll just walk towards a wall. Yeah, walk exactly. towards a wall. And then, um, although I had a, um, a woman in a seminar saying um, that doesn't work for everyone, yeah, well, yeah, for obvious yeah. reasons, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pregnancy could be a yeah, yeah, yeah complaining factor. Um, just what I really, I really enjoyed your book, the carb appropriate diet, and highly recommend Scotty's audience checks checks it out. But one of the things I thought that was particularly interesting about it was that that stepwise approach around. Let's start with the simplest and most profound interventions that we can that we can make. And then let's work our way down a list of progressively more nuanced interventions based on how someone is progressing and how ambitious they are around progressing further. Can you can you talk us through that approach with the starting point and, and how you step from there? Yeah, and, and really that came from you know having over 20 years in practice seeing a lot of people struggle with a lot of different dietary interventions because they're, they're complicated, they're complex. You know, you're getting a plan from someone that has... 25 different things that you've got to do and that can be very overwhelming for people and not only is it overwhelming but often it's unnecessary you know I, I think with most things if you can get optimum results with fewer actions that's obviously you know, why, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you exactly <laughs> yeah. and so it started in that in that vein and one of the key things that I've seen a lot, and this isn't true for everyone, but one thing that I've seen a lot in clinical practice is that often people are better abstainers than moderators. We, we talked about this before, but a lot of people find it's easier to have a clear target that they remove. Yes. And, and that's it. That's all they need to focus on for a point of time. And that's quite easy for people to do, and it encourages better behaviors over time. Yeah. So the way the stepwise process works in, in the Carb Appropriate book is to start with the low-hanging fruit, yeah. to start with getting rid of added sugars first. And then the point of that process is that you check in, you're reflective, you're checking in every week or two to see whether you're getting progress. Mm -hmm. If you're not, then you take a step up. 
and the next step is to eliminate gluten grains. Why? Because if people eliminate gluten grains, typically they drop a lot of carbohydrate load out of their diet. And so the process goes on like that, eliminating certain higher carbohydrate foods until at the very end of the process you're practically on a ketogenic diet. Right. You're eating no real obligate carbohydrates. And at that point, you know, it could be that that's what you found to be most appropriate or carb appropriate for you, but you may have found that balance further on. Yes. And the beautiful thing as well is once you get to a point, you don't necessarily have to stay there. You know, if your goal is to lose body fat and you lose the body fat you want and then you're maintaining, and then you want to say, put on a bit of muscle, hey, you might benefit from taking a step down. Right. Maybe adding back in some sweet potatoes, some yams, right. things like that. Right. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that approach, uh, and I think it's a enormously practical. Uh, for the, the vast majority of people are going to find a comprehensive, you know, flip on their entire nutrition nutritional protocol from sort of a standard Australian diet, a standard American diet, to a keto diet is such an enormous shift. I think for a lot of people it is intimidating, and even if they decide that they are prepared to start off on that journey, they reverse course fairly quickly. Yeah. Whereas yours is is much more, I think, uh, attuned to the reality of human nature, and that is that we can tolerate change when it's you know the, the frog in boiling water. Like to yep. change that is gradual is much easier for most of us to tolerate. Exactly. Is that what exactly. you found in practice? Yeah, and particularly when I'm giving people plans in group settings and things, I find that in that sort of community basis, it's much easier to get people to understand concepts rather than jumping in with all these specifics straight away. And so that's why obviously the, the whole process, before we even look at restriction or elimination, starts with eating a natural, unprocessed diet. Right? Yeah. That's number one. And then a few of the key concepts, as we you know have discussed, things like not snacking, eating meals, not snacks. You know, these are some of the key underlying concepts that people really benefit from and they can get their heads around. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I think the paleo diet was so successful is not because it was the paleo diet, it was because it provided a framework that people could understand. Yes. And that was the key thing. You could you could visualize it, you could imagine it, and that's what's really evocative for people. And I think people will always understand concepts better than rote learning numbers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it's, it's about having a broad firm understanding of the why like why you're eating certain foods why you're manipulating your macros like unless you have that it, it's not beholden to anything you know it's kind of hearsay and but but when you have it um, when you understand the why intrinsically like that's the best starting position so w when you're talking about these different steps and um, changing behavior like is there a time span or is it just sort of governed by changes that you take on board at your own pace or do you say okay between weeks one and three I would like you to you know minimize processed foods weeks four to six is it that kind of step or is it self-managed to some degree it's self-managed and I, I typically get people to focus number one on just buying a compendium of natural food so you know what you're bringing home from the supermarket is, is natural and processed stuff that's step one Step two is when people start to restrict those higher carbohydrate foods or those particularly added sugar foods. And I, I typically tend to find that people, if they're checking in fortnightly, you know, once every two weeks, seeing whether there's been some progress, and if there's great progress, stay the course, man. If there's not, then you can take that step up. Mm. In some respects, the, the process never ends. You know, it only ends when you're in the casket. 
Yeah. And at that point, it's, it's too late anyway. But with, within that time, I think what we need to start to think of with nutrition is it's a journey. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's an expedition. It's fun. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people will think about trial and error as being this onerous thing. Oh, no, I've got to try this. I've got to try that. You know, how am I going to find my place on the stepwise process? Whatever it happens to be. But I think that's fun. Yeah. You know, I think it's fun yeah. to try different shit out. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I think, yeah, everyone in this room is sort of, you know, a biohacker or uses their own body as a case study. And it is exciting. Some things work, some things don't. Um, but I, th- I think, I often think about people that have resistance to change. And my response is often, what have you got to lose? Like, if you're yeah. unsatisfied with your health, like the status quo hasn't served as well over the last 60 years or so. So what have you got to lose? You know? So my, my, um, my reaction is often the same as well. And that is a, that's a very rational question that, that edicts a very rational response. And that is, well, you're right, I don't have a lot to lose. But, but it doesn't often result in any shift. So mm-hmm. you've, you've, won the, you've won the debate. That's all we, I care we, about. <laughs> <laughs> We've all acknowledged that there's nothing to lose, but no one does anything about it. One of the things that um, I was talking to Cliff about earlier that I thought you'd be really interested in was the degree to which mindfulness um, plays a part in body optimization or health optimization. And um, we were sort of comparing notes, and Cliff's the expert on the, I'm the student, but I thought it might be good because I think your response to that question that Scotty and I would both reply to in exactly the same way previously, your response may be different, yeah. I'm guessing, bearing in mind the mindfulness work that you've done. Could you talk us through a little bit about yeah, where well, that's playing in? Resistance is a really interesting thing. And I think, you know, Scotty, you hit, it on the nail, hit the nail on the head before when you were asking why, you know, why are you getting into this process? Why are you interested in these things? I would ask the same question when someone is resistant to change, why is there that resistance? And more importantly, you know, you go from the process of why into what into how, how is that resistance serving you? And people take that in, in, in a way that it's not intended. They say, well, it's not serving me. And I'll often say, well, are you sure? It must be, are otherwise you sure? yes. would have changed. Exactly. Yeah. And often we find really interesting things. You know, we'll find that, for example, people's weight is serving them because it protects them against the world or it protects them against, uh, I've seen this a lot with female clients, that it, it protects them against unwanted male attention mm-hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, we can go back to trauma or we can go to other things in life. But I, there's I, a, I think, yeah, for many people it's their identity. Like, yeah. You know, they identify as a large He's the person. big guy. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And so I think therein lies an interesting part of the process where to release some of those self-limiting beliefs, we need to first become aware of them. You know, shine a light on them, and then they can often scurry away into the darkness. Um, but outside of that, we can start to instill patterns of mindfulness through, you know, meditation or other mindful practices, and we can also begin to release and reverse self-limiting beliefs. You know, and there are particular ways to do that using. Sounds a little bit hokey, but hey, it works. Affirmations, visualization, all those types of things. Arguably, I think this is more important than you know, prescribing a diet or macros or, a, you know, a workout, like, that's all very well and good and it has, it has merit, but unless you attempt to overcome those barriers that you had and you might have had for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like, you'll, you'll circle back around to where you currently are at some point, you know. You can go on this sort of 
exploration and um, and change potentially change habits or lose some weight but unless you tackle these resistance or resistances that you've had for a number of years you'll never get to where you deserve to enjoy be. sustainable yeah. results exactly. yeah because yeah. you know so much of what we do is to, it, to a large degree it's autonomic it's you know we're reacting without even realizing it you know it's exactly the same as you get home in the evening do you remember how you got home you were driving on autopilot right mm. most things actually end up being that way when they're so habituated and so many of our responses to to food or our responses to situations that make us or cause us to overeat or that cause us to not go to the gym or any of those factors that may play in a lot of them are purely reactive responses to our environment and unless we can be more mindful and begin to create you know what I like to think of as a little junction of opportunity there to maybe subvert that which was previously just done mm. we can't really do much and there's, there's actually been work done on that where uh, you know mindfulness and awareness can be more effective than a weight loss diet mm. in terms of losing weight in terms of losing weight exactly yeah, yeah. which is counterintuitive but now that as soon as you start fleshing it out it makes perfect sense you know you read yeah. you read that on on paper and it's like well you know that that's surprising but it's really not because you're addressing cause as opposed to symptom mm. so in terms of your practice and obviously you're not a psychologist you're not a psychiatrist that's right what at, um, at what point you know in in terms of assessing a, a patient or are they patients for your clients? I keep saying client, but you keep saying patients. I'm guessing patients, uh, victims. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on the fence. It's Subjects. It really should be clients. You know, I, I often say uh, say patient because I'm so exposed to that in the medical literature, and I'm working a lot with doctors and yeah, things. Sure. You know, I'm working okay. with people who are clinical patients for a for a disease or disorder. But typically, as nutritionists, yeah, we'd, we'd that'd be a client. That'd be a client. Okay. So in terms of your work with a client, um, first of all, at, at what point is the, is the mindfulness element part of your practice with all clients or is there something in that initial assessment or discussion that indicates mindfulness should be a component of the conversation and when it becomes part of the conversation where's your where's your starting point how far back do you want to go so typically it, it's a part of the process but I'm also cognizant of the fact that people are coming to see me as a nutritionist mm. and some people are not necessarily prepared to take an extra step or they're not that's not something they're coming to me for necessarily and so I need to gauge the client and whether they're prepared to take that step as well and we can talk about that and most people do end up doing some type of mindfulness work but not all do and at the end of the day if they can walk out of my clinic and they've got some take-home actions that they can actually do, whether it be nutrition or exercise or mindfulness, then that's really the key. It's a good result. Yeah. And, and with respect to the sort of mind-body work, if you want to call it that, it's really not clinical mind-body work in the same way that a psychologist or psychiatrist would do because that would be outside of scope for me. What it really is is not going back to traumas and it's not you know, counseling, what it is, is looking at limiting beliefs as they appear now. Right, here and so, now. Yeah, in that respect, it's more like life and health coaching that recognizes the mind-body connection, helps people to have some take-home tools that they can use as well. So whether that is those personal present tense positive belief statements, 
or whether it's some direct work that we do in the clinic, then it's, it's those types of things that work on the now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in terms of the, the percentage of, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated with this. For me, this is a relatively new space as an adjunct to health and wellness, um, specifically when we're talking about weight loss as a primary objective. So it, it, any conversation about health and wellness broadly defined or holistically defined is always included in mindfulness element for me, but the idea that it is potentially the most or potentially one of the most powerful interventions you can have in a weight loss program is fascinating to me. So in terms of your weight loss clients, as a percentage, just roughly speaking, how many do you think are benefiting primarily from the mindfulness piece? If you had to take a guess, I'm, I'm not asking for a hard and fast number, but I'm just trying to get a sense of, is this primary, secondary, tertiary? Like where would you rank it in terms of the interventions that you could make in a clinical setting? It's a really good question. It's and not something that I've thought of before. But I, I think that in the longer term, it's nearing a hundred percent of people with respect to their success over a sustained term. You know, yeah. I think people in the short term can get amazing success from diet, but it's not gonna be sustainable unless they can actually be empowered with their lifestyle choices. And the only way that we can be empowered with our lifestyle choices, I believe, is to become more mindful and to create more of those positive, fulfilling belief patterns rather than the self-limiting ones. So I think in the long term, it would be primary. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. It's great. Like, I find this all very exciting and it's the direction that we should be going in. So just circling back around, because I know people would go to you for your clinical expertise and knowledge around nutrition. So what point do you start talking about mindfulness? I guess it's case by case, how receptive, because people would go, oh, that's a bit woo-woo, like how's that going to, you know, I need to yeah. know what to eat, when to eat. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, stick to the stick to the script, Cliff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like that's cold yeah. hard facts, if you like. Yeah. Like the the mindfulness is a bit sort of. I don't know. I don't know how. To it's somewhat it, so. controversial, right? Yeah. For, for, for many people, it's a, it's bordering on controversial. So I, I'm just trying yeah. to put my my feet into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a client or a patient of yours. First time client. Yeah. yeah. I think in. In a lot of cases, it, it happens from the outset. You know, it's one of the questions that I'll well, often ask is, you know, here's what I, I'll often ask people, well, do you meditate? And guess what the response is? Almost always, no, but I should. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone says me, I should. Same, same response. And I, I don't know, in my, um, I think it was in my second book, uh, Time Rich Cash Optional, I, I wrote a little section in there on removing should from your vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Because should just creates the sort of quantum superposition between having made a decision. And that's where a lot of our stress comes from anyway. So when people say, well, no, I, but I should, I say, well, either do or don't. But, right. you know, don't be right. in this superposition yeah. here. If you yeah. don't want to meditate, that's cool. I'm not going to force you. You know, we're, we're going to do other stuff. We're going to do lots of cool stuff. But if you want to start meditating, let's look at how we do that. The next thing is that people typically don't think they have enough time. So I was saying to Josh before, I get people starting with one minute. I say, do you have one minute tomorrow to meditate? Of course I do. Okay, well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a one-minute mindfulness of breath meditation first thing in the morning. And then we're going to expand it from there. It'll be two minutes the next day and three minutes the next day, up to a total initially of only 10 minutes. And I think almost everyone would say they have 10 minutes 
in the morning to meditate. I mean, Absolutely. some people waste more than 10 minutes wondering whether they should go to the bathroom or not in the morning, you know. Go and do that and then meditate. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't fuck around. <laughs> Man, I've, been, I've been saying I should for a, as long as I can remember, you know, maybe 10 years. It seems daunting. Okay. Around meditation, you mean? Yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, I don't know what it is. I have resistance to it. Like, I can see many friends or people in the industry that I'm in have benefited from and tell me about the benefits of, but I just have this resistance to that and yoga, and I know I'd benefit from, from yoga from a therapeutic perspective from a mobility perspective it would help my training so I know that there's certain things so do you, do you want to get into this now yeah let's yeah. talk about <laughs> don't cry stay don't tuned cry. for Scott's limiting self belief you're going to make me walk into the wall first <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah well I mean, it's it's super common right I want to get into Scott's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know that resistance to to doing it is so common yeah, so but, but it's not like when you look at other areas of my life. So working out, nutrition, like I apply myself and I apply myself 100% because I know the foods that are going to benefit me. I know the type of workout that's going to benefit me. But when it comes to other disciplines, i.e. yoga or meditation, I've just got this, you know, yeah. this boom gate comes down. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things that can play into that, and one, of course, is that there's resistance to maybe there's resistance to awareness as well. You know, there's also a lot of resistance, I think, around the the next thing. You know, I'm doing all these things. Ah, oh, I've got to do that as well. Like mm-hmm. it's, it, it really is the metaphorical um, straw that broke the camel's back. You know, mm-hmm. it's that other thing that I've got to do. Ah, oh, God. And that's <laughs> the thing we don't. Meditate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing we don't have time for. And I, I see it in a similar way to, I was saying to Josh before that I work a lot with chronically fatigued clients. And for a lot of them, they can't train. They couldn't go to the gym and do an hour. There's no way. They, they are exhausted after 10 minutes. So I don't have them not training. I take exactly that same approach, that Kaizen sort of approach of very, very, very small incremental increases where they might start with one push-up, one squat. And it's the same, same thing, right? I say the same thing to them. Can you do one push-up and one squat tomorrow? Yeah, I can do that. Cool, let's just do that. You know, in the same way, even if you've got resistance to it, the resistance is going to be compounded by the fact that you've got to do 59 minutes of it mm, yeah. rather than one. Yeah. Do that one. And hey, do it first, do it every day, even if it's one minute. Uh, no, I think that's great advice. I, mm. I, I, went to, I did the Tim Brown course. I was, we were chatting about it earlier. And he's uh, he was a fantastic course, but he, he's at the traditional school uh, for want of a better description which is 20 minutes twice a day so you know first thing in the morning and then sometimes sort of mid-afternoon or um, ideally before you have dinner uh, or afternoon but not directly around the meal anyway point being that 20 minutes twice a day I've managed to do five times since I did the course four years ago and so (laughs) I'm constantly beating myself up for not doing 20 minutes twice a day and if I do 10 or 15 minutes four or five times a week, I feel benefit from that. Steph, my wife, certainly tells me that I benefit <laughs> from that. Apparently, I'm a more likable guy, yeah. um, which wouldn't be hard. Uh, low, low, low bar. <laughs> low bar. 
But point is that that uh, uh, reframing it as you know, do you have a minute a day or ten minutes a day? It sets you up for success because there is not that that uh, because I've had resistance to it as well. I did um, Ashtanga yoga for a couple of years and really should have stuck with it. Um, I'm going to say should now as well. (laughs) (laughs) But the but the 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 point is that I think that Ashtanga Ashtanga is a 90 minute practice. Yeah. So same kind of deal where it's, it's easy to find an excuse to not do a 90 minute yoga practice mm. when you've got to get to the studio, get changed, get on. It's a two and a half hour commitment. It takes that long to get in my fucking leggings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's something I don't want to say. Ten, <laughs> 10 minutes though, first thing in the morning or starting with one, that's mm. imminently doable. So Scott, maybe perhaps in the next podcast we do a cliff, you could report back to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I, I guess I haven't come across that approach that sort of when you're Incremental. Oh, yeah, bite size. I think because it's something that you we all could do, you know, you could sit in meditation for an hour, right? I, I think anyone could do that. Whereas you couldn't go in and, well, maybe you could, but I, I imagine you couldn't go in and deadlift 350 kilos. Right, well, Scott's saying you could, so that's right. Scott is lying. A lot of people yeah. say <laughs> But you wouldn't start a gym training routine mm. and just walk in and lift 200 kilos off the floor, you know, mm. you would start incrementally mm. and you would allow the body to adapt. And I think that the same has got to be true of any pattern or habit that we get into. We need point. to allow yeah. ourselves to do it. It's a great point. And that's the stepwise program as well with carbs, right? Like if yeah. we're talking around this inc- this incrementalist approach, yep. very accessible, very approachable, very unintimidating, and then offering the opportunity for a deeper journey over time yeah i think that's a just a great approach and a big part of that i'm i'm dead set against absolutism you know and i see it all the time you know you've got to do it this way or it's wrong you've got to do it that way or it's wrong mm. the reality is any way that works is right for you right and while we might have best practice guidelines or we might have the the way that is most effective for a lot of people it certainly doesn't mean it's the only way. Yeah. And that's why I think people can release a lot of their their fear and their resistance mm. around around diet or around a mindfulness practice, whatever it happens to be, just by recognizing that, hey, doing it is better than worrying about whether it's the right way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. That's why I have a beer at the end of the day, because I figure just doing it is better than not. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me a better person to be around. <laughs> I've heard you say the best diet for any one person is the one that suits you. Yeah. I might have butchered that quote. but No, no you, you did right. And the, the other aspect of that is the best diet for you physiologically, if we again you know become our nerdy pointy heads, may not actually be the best diet for you because it might be unrealistic, unsustainable. Mm, right. You know, and this, this is why we're now looking so much more at different types of intermittent fasting routines and you know different types of carb backloading or carb front loading whatever it happens to be now we could look at the evidence and say that it's pretty mixed you know carb front loading versus carb backloading for example hey some people are better off eating most of the carbs in the morning others are better off eating most of your carbs in the evening physiologically Mm. i would say the most important thing is does eating in that particular way fill you up make you satisfied make you happy and sleepy at night and help you to stick to your calories yeah are you progressing does, yeah, yeah you're happy. it works yeah 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 very very good call and that's uh, i think that um several of the things you said today in terms of the simplification of of the starting point distilling it down to the most profound intervention 
that one can make at this point in time yeah and then growing from there if you're inclined but you don't have to no one's forcing you there's no gun to your head yeah uh, it's a great approach you sort of make it you stop beating yourself up when you do that as well yeah that'd you be know, nice you're in you're in process and being in process is cool yeah yeah, we talk in the in our business in Thrive all the time. We talk about you know progress, not perfection. This yeah. idea that you know we've got to throw perfectionism out the window. It's a it's a non-existent standard, right? It's impossible to attain, so therefore it's non-existent. It's pretend progress. Let's just let's just try for a little bit of progress. And, and, and uh, within day. in progress, like you can have this trajectory, but within that, you've got ups and downs. We can uh, be absolutely day, mm. like yeah. daily or weekly. You can be in an ebb and a flow like it's I think as long as the overall picture is an upward trajectory well yeah and I think that's a, acknowledge that's a, that it, <laughs> it can be kind of no that's a great point and in, in business what that we're you know um, and, and I think perhaps it's it's useful to use this analogy in terms of personal progress as well but in business there's a set of metrics that you're looking at there's a set of numbers and if three or four of them are heading sideways or backwards there's always one that's sticking up mm. so yeah. you've, you've you've progressed and in in your personal journey if you're if you fall off the wagon or you, you think you've fallen off the wagon I love the story you told before about that actually I'd love to come back to that but if you think you've fallen off the wagon progress is getting back on the wagon so it's just about finding in that, um, the, whether it's affirmations or positive self-talk or reframing things so that it's more optimistic. Mm. I've made some progress today. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> not perfect, just, but I've made some if progress. You do, yeah, fall off the wagon. It's certainly not the end of the conversation. No, no progress is just recognizing you want to get back on the wagon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And then getting back and on the next progress. a classic example of that. You, you, um, you got kicked out of nutrition at college, didn't you? I did indeed. <laughs> Not only that, I got, kicked, back I got kicked out of high school and then I got kicked out of university um, nutrition classes for questioning the, the high carb dogma of the time. And <laughs> I tell you what, there's no better calling card place. There's no better calling card for <laughs> you today yeah. than that story. Yeah, exactly. that, that's, that's panned out really well. And now I'm just finishing my PhD at the same place. So. Yeah. <laughs> they, no, changed really their mind. <laughs> they, they changed their mind. And, and I think um, just um, what, one of the other things I'd love you to speak to Cliff is is you know there's it's really really positive I think that the the discussion around low carb moderate carb keto has become progressively more mainstream as we've seen a million times before there's areas that are being overhyped and there's areas that are being overpromised and that can yield some blowback and some negative consequences in terms of the positive aspects of what you're seeing in the mainstream media and some of those that are concerning you, what's your perspective on where we are in terms of the evolution of that discussion? I think that the positive is that, number one, we're starting to see very high-impact journals publishing very good studies and reviews and meta-analyses that tell us what we pretty much know, that fat's not the enemy, saturated fat isn't the enemy and that's translating now through into the mainstream where people are not vilifying any one ingredient in food so much anymore I think yes and I think we are actually starting to see a shift there we're starting to see that dietary habits across the board are changing and I think that's really positive I think where there's a danger there is that we go from vilifying one nutrient to vilifying another right and that's why I'm dead set against the overly dogmatic application of low carb. Yeah. Now, I understand. I've been in low carb for 20 years now. 
I started doing that before anyone in Australasia, as far as I know, especially working with people, you know, athletes and mainstream people, not just in that very clinical setting. And because of that, I'm often, you know, polarized a little bit in terms of being the, the keto guy. And that's not the case at all, because I think that we need to recognize that some people thrive on a high carb diet. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. Some people thrive on a very low carb diet. I think what we can all agree on is that the amount of carb that we were told to eat across the board was too high. Yeah. So most people thrive on a diet that is lower in carbohydrate than they've been told. Yes. But it doesn't mean that people need to be keto all the time. Right. Or that they need to conform to any particular dietary ideal. I think the key there is that if people focus on the commonalities first, mm -hmm. in other words, eat a natural and processed diet, eat more vegetables. Your mama told you yeah. and you didn't do it. She was right. So start doing it now because we know that that's something that's legit, right? Focus on those key fundamentals first and stop vilifying any one nutrient yeah. because that hasn't served us. Yeah. yeah. The, a reversal of that kind of reductionist approach to nutrition would be great. Where it was yeah. all about, you know, macros and micros and it was all this elevating back up to a real food, natural diet, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think, I think it would be fantastic. I think it's important, particularly for our listeners, that we talk about the distinction between certain veggies. So when we're talking about a low-carb diet, and I had this conversation today because um, someone I was speaking to was saying that, you know, the keto diet is inherently bad for us, there's no fiber, there's no, you know, prebiotics, but in actual fact, if you're doing it, in our view, the right way, it yeah. embraces, it's arguably a, a lamb based diet, yep. um, oh, sorry, plant-based diet, lots of green leafy veggies, um, lots of prebiotics, and then sort of all your other fats in, in place. But it's certainly not a diet that, um, you know, throws the baby out with the bathwater in terms of carbs. Like there's, there's plenty of green leafy veggies. I think we need to make that distinction that, yeah. you know, there's kind of two types. Absolutely. And, you know, Having done this for a long time, I've never prescribed a ketogenic diet that doesn't include a lot of veggies mm. because it doesn't matter to the efficacy of the diet. What it does, in terms of the ketogenic aspects of the diet, what it does is it provides those things you're talking about, the prebiotic fibers, resistant starches, the vitamins and mineral content that we require. Those things are critically important. And I think some of the criticism early on for ketogenic and other low-carb diets was because of the idea that they must be low in vegetable matter. There's been a recurrent theme that a lot of people trot out, which is that a ketogenic or low-carb diet is bad for the microbiome, you know, bad for the, the gut biome, the bacteria in the gut. I think we can mitigate any of that risk by, by doing those things, by eating fibers, resistant starches, lots of veggies. There's actually been a, a recent study has demonstrated that's untrue anyway, because while the microbiome changes initially, it rebounds and comes back to where it was actually quite quickly. So the body adapts pretty well, but it's still fair to say that we need to support the body with the, again, commonalities. Mm. Hey, eat some veggies. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you actually... Um you recommend up to nine serves a day? Yeah, I try and have people aiming for, for nine serves every day. Yeah. And, and or nine like plus. Serving size? Yeah, serving size are about the size of your fist, yeah. roughly. And the, the reason for that is we know that for every serve of vegetables you add to your diet, you're likely to have lower cardiovascular disease risk, you're likely to have lower cancer risk, all those things. 
We have a recent meta-analysis out of King's College London which shows that your health outcomes basically improve up to 10 serves a day and then they plateau off. So that's really good evidence that, hey, we're probably still not eating enough. Right. Now, I, I don't think, even with the, the recent Pure study where they suggested that maybe we don't need quite so much, there's no detriment. The authors actually said this. There's no detriment to having more. Damn more, right. So I would rather go slightly over, particularly when we have all of the other evidence suggesting that, hey, right. more veggies are better. Yeah. You know, that, that's a pretty important thing. And, and all the people I've worked with over the years, I think that's probably one of the key factors that most people miss out on is getting enough vegetables each and every day. Whether they're Olympic athletes or people with chronic health conditions or just everyday Joes, that's one of the key things. And I mean, we talked about this before. Yeah. We we probably don't do I don't, that. I don't get nine serves, no way. I'd no. say five or six max. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that's something that we can all sort of strive for as well. Yeah. Again, progress, not perfection, right? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. That's called a callback. It is. <laughs> I almost want to leave it there. <laughs> just the outro now. Yeah. Do you know, there is actually just one other question I have for you. So in, in the book, I, um, I related to your tale around uh, your frustration of clients leaving natural power offices with armfuls of very expensive practitioner-only uh, herbal supplements and vitamin and mineral supplements. And the, the stepwise approach to supplementation makes a lot of sense as well. Same approach you would take to looking at dietary interventions, step by step, same thing with supplementation. I, yeah. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think I call it green allopathy, which is that idea that you're basically doing the same as any other orthodox practitioner, but instead of giving someone drugs, you're giving them a whole bunch of supplements or herbs or whatever it happens to be. And it's incredibly reductionist. You know, you have X symptoms, and although I'm claiming to be a holistic, natural health practitioner, what I'm really just doing is trying to treat those symptoms with a whole range of supplements. And like I say, I think that's lazy practice. I think we can start with the basics, start with the base, and the base is always food. Mm. On top of that, I think we can start to plug in the things that are most effective in the broader sense. So then we use the biggest impact things, like a good quality multi-nutrient formula. Yeah then we can pretty much stop there and see if there is anything else required. Yeah. And in certain conditions, there might be a few things required and certain signs that we see in the client, we might prescribe some other things. But the difference really is that the client walks out with one or two things that are really impactful rather than 10 different products that cost them $1,000 a, a month. You know? yeah. I, like I say, I think that that is us not doing our job as natural health practitioners. And as you know, some of the, the listeners may know, uh, I did my undergrad in naturopathy, so I'm a naturopath. Yeah. You know, my basis is as a naturopath, and then I am also a nutritionist, and that's what my postgrad and, and research is in, is in nutrition, because that's what I've been a clinical specialist in for these last few decades. Um, but I have a very holistic approach to health. Yeah. But from my point of view, holism includes everything that can give benefit. It's not a naturalistic fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. If that so makes so sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, it didn't make any sense. Good, good. No, so it sounded great. Yeah. If it, it didn't make sense, just buy the book. <laughs> yeah. It will all make sense. Right. You call me for a phone consult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess, in essence, there's no sense in sort of trying to fine-tune your health through the mechanisms of supplements and biohacks if the foundation isn't there and the foundation needs to be yeah. whole foods and real food, right? And, and what are people basing it on? You know, a lot of times 
the the prescriptions that people are giving are based on incomplete evidence or tests that aren't credible, tests that aren't valid. You know, I think we can do so much more by legitimately looking at the client, seeing what their signs and symptoms are, knowing how to read a laboratory test report, you know, knowing those things as practitioners so we can be consummate, and then covering the bases. Why? Because that's future-proofing the client rather than pretending to be ultra-scientific when in fact a lot of it's pseudoscience. Yeah. I'm getting yeah. on my soapbox now, eh? No, this is good. This is, this this is, is good. It suits you. Standing up. Suits you. <laughs> it saves me. See, if, if, I get, profit, mate. if I get if I get to rant here, it means I won't get on and rant on Facebook. Right? <laughs> You're, so good You're all wrong. <laughs> I always say to oh, my shit. I always say to my partner, I hold on, hold on, someone on Facebook's wrong. <laughs> I just gotta get how get novel? To how novel? <laughs> Let me intervene. Yeah, it's a red letter day. Someone on the internet's wrong. Uh, that's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been in awe of you for a, a number of years now. You're, it's the first time, I guess, I've heard you talk about the whole mindfulness side of it. And I don't know, you've just gone up in my estimations, Cliff. Thank you, Scott. Likewise. I mean, <laughs> just just by being that. here. <laughs> uh, thank you. Are we calling thank it you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Josh. Pleasure.